I want to preface my remarks today with a little bit of what I think should be pretty obvious, but apparently isn't. Nothing that I say here is a graduate level history course. And this show today is going to be a great example of that. This is a show that should have been done hours ago, but I got sucked down a historical rabbit hole. And by the time I realized that I was still nowhere near the bottom and began to climb back out, time had gotten by and things happened. I look at when I talk history as more philosophy than actual history. And I think today you'll kind of see that. There, there's a lot of information related to what we're going to talk about today. I'll try to remember to link it up at the, on, the, on the show page today. But in the event that I don't, you'll, you'll clearly hear what to Google and where to start. But understand that anything I say on this show, anything I have ever said on this show, anything I ever will say on this show is a starting point. It's not the end of the discussion. It's simply a point to start, and hopefully you will enjoy learning as much as I do. And if I have accomplished that, then I've accomplished something, I guess. And if I haven't, well, so be it, I suppose. It's not really all that different than any other radio show, huh? But realistically speaking, I want you to understand that there was so much more today that I could have gone into, but I didn't. One of the great themes of the book, and I guess the movie of 1984 by George Orwell, is this idea of controlling information. Not just controlling information, but defining what that information is. Changing facts by changing information. Now, when we first read 1984, when we first saw the movie, we thought, that's very dystopian. It is drawn from history to some degree. I mean, there were clearly historical references to this in the the ideas of propaganda and the likes certainly had been tried here in the United States under George Creel and the Committee for Public Information during the First World War, as well as other totalitarian dictatorships, not democracies. But throughout human history, the idea of controlling information and defining what facts are facts versus your suppositions or your conspiracy theories has always been a major point of contention between governments and their people, between people and people, between institutions and other institutions and other people. How does the average person, you or I, know what the facts actually are? Let me give me a couple of examples here. So last weekend, Hurricane Ida roared ashore near New Orleans, actually hit at Homa, but Nolens was spared the direct hit with a great deal of rain, we were told. And I was sitting here on the air recording with, with both Rod and talking to Bill at the same time. And we were talking about the fact that there were news reports that Nolens had been flooded and that the power was massively out. Now, again, how would you or I know that to be true? 
We've been told that it's true. We have no reason to doubt that it's true. But how would I physically know beyond the shadow of any reasonable doubt that it's true? There are things I could do. I could call someone in Nolens and say, hey, is your power out? But even that doesn't confirm a massive power outage. It just confirms that that one person has an outage. I jumped on the webcams because that's what I do. And very clearly, the webcam that I was watching on Bourbon Street definitely had power. And they were definitely still broadcasting. Yeah, it was heavy rain. There was some wind. But the power was still on. But now the questions start, well, what am I actually watching? Am I actually watching a live cam? I mean, it says it is, but what if it's, because I know some of these webcams are not really live feeds, it's a live camera, but it was recorded and then replayed later. Do this in radio, do this in podcasts, that's why the name of the show is Plausibly Live. Is this a live show? Yes, it is. Is it live while you're listening to it? It may sound like it is, but it ain't. How would I know if the North Pole was really melting or not? I mean, I'm told over and over again that the North Pole is melting, that the polar ice cap is, is melting. But how am I, the average person, supposed to know that? How am I, the, the average, everyday, normal person, not a scientist, supposed to actually know that? Am I supposed to just simply trust what I'm told? And if I don't trust what I'm told about news events or science events, am I really a denier? Am I really saying that, no, you're lying to me, the North Pole isn't melting? Or am I just saying, I don't know if I believe that or not. I guess I could go to the North Pole and see, but even if I did, even if I landed at the North Pole tomorrow and looked around and saw what there was to see, it's one moment out of an entire history, out of an entire year, even out of an entire day. How do I know that tomorrow it won't be different than that without physically standing there and observing it? There was a time when science was about that, observations. This is what we're seeing over time. This is what we're seeing right now. This is, this is how we interpret what we're seeing but we do that with the understanding that it may not always be this way. Okay, great. But in the past 20, 30 years, science has moved away from that observational ideology into more of a, this is what it means. And if you disagree with us or don't like what we say it means, then you're a denier. You can't have questions at all. In fact, if you do counter what we're saying, you're guilty of misinformation. You're guilty of not believing the truth. And we've seen people go so far as to say people who ask those kinds of questions, particularly about global warming, should be eliminated. We've seen that happen. And then we come to COVID-19. If you could sit here, as I do in my copious free times, and watch the studies fly back and forth. This study proves this. No, this study proves... It's like coffee, folks. One study proves it's good for you. One study proves it's bad for you. Oh, now there's two studies saying it's good for you the next day. Oh, here's three saying it's bad. COVID-19 has been the victim of... We don't want... We don't know. But we got to say something. 
in since day one. And the problem has become that the narrative has changed, and I don't think anybody would ignore that. I don't think anybody would deny that the narrative has changed. I mean, it's pretty much on video. Don't wear a mask. Wear one mask. Wear two masks. Don't wear a mask. Get a vaccination. Don't get a get a booster. The, the, the narrative has changed so much. But each time the narrative changes, anyone who dares question it in any way, shape, or form, whether you're an extreme anti-vaxxer or Joe Rogan, or whether you're just someone who has questions, anybody who asks those questions is labeled a denier or a spreader of misinformation. If you say the word COVID in a, in a post on social media, you will get a COVID notification on that post. Whether your conversation has anything to do with COVID or not, when I post this show on Facebook, it will get a notification because the word COVID will appear in it. Even though it's not really what I'm talking about. I mean, I guess it is, but it ain't. It's a question of who decides what information is misinformation. And I know we've talked about this before, but now we have a bit more impetus to it. Why? Because one California county has decided to make COVID misinformation, specifically COVID misinformation, specifically medical misinformation, which is a much broader term, a quote-unquote crisis. That's right, a crisis. Now do you solve a crisis? Well, seems like lately you declare an emergency, which comes with its attendant emergency powers. And you go down the hill from there, don't you? Back in 1733, there was a German immigrant who came to the colonies, to the American colonies, the North American colonies as they were known then. He was a publisher. He was a man who knew how to publish stuff and write stuff, and mostly he did publishing. But for whatever reason, and I don't have time to go back through the whole thing. I wish I did. Believe me, this is a historical rabbit hole I think you would really, really enjoy, but it would take hours to go through. What you need to understand are the basics here. Parliament of England had decided that there would be a rule that said who could publish and who could not. And if you could not publish, anything you published was considered libel. That law was eventually overthrown when the great, the glorious revolution occurred in 1695. William and Mary ascended to the throne. But Parliament still didn't really let go of that, even though... They said a lot of things about freedom of the press and freedom of speech. They really didn't let go of that idea. And when John Peter Zinger landed on the shores of America in New York, he found himself publishing a newspaper, but he really didn't like the new governor that was sent. The new royal governor was sent, and the new royal governor made a big deal about getting his salary. And most New Yorkers at that time, colonial New Yorkers, thought that this was outrageous, that this clown was being a he was being a typical jerk. And Zinger, John Peter Zinger, began publishing newspaper articles and pamphlets criticizing the new governor. It raised a lot of questions. 
when Parliament passed its new law after the Glorious Revolution. Did they really mean to allow free speech and freedom of the press? No, they didn't really mean that. They said it, but they didn't really mean it. And they did that by controlling who could publish and who who couldn't. It's called the license law. And what essentially you had to do was buy the license. And there was only one license to publish in whatever area you were. And Zinger didn't have that license. And so the governor of the state of New York, the royal governor, had Zinger arrested and charged with libel and some other nice little crimes on the side just to be just to be uh, just to be a jerk about it. Zinger's trial is one of the it's one of the seminal moments in American history, folks. You don't I don't think most people today realize how much of our appreciation and our love for freedom of speech and freedom of the press comes from this trial, the Zinger trial. I wish we had time to go through the whole thing. What you need to know is his first attorney was really good, really good. And the crown was terrified that they were going to lose. And so in a legal maneuver that ranks right up there with modern day stupidity, (laughs) they disbarred his attorney so that he couldn't defend Zinger in court against this charge of libel. Not making this up. So he got a couple of new attorneys. And unfortunately for the state, they turned out to be pretty good. The defense that they used was this idea that I, ideas need to be shared, that, that no idea is really in and of itself dangerous, at least in the sense of sedition and in, 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 in the sense of libel. Truth, it was believed, would win out. If, if someone wants to publish something or say something that's a lie or that's false— People should be allowed to question it. People should be allowed to read it, think for themselves. An answer is called the Areopagata Bagatia defense. I'm sorry, my Greek is so bad. It's actually based on the Areopagus, the the hill in Athens where where the philosophers and the government used to debate things. If you happen to be Christian, this is the same Areopagus that uh, the Apostle Paul made his case at when he was in Athens. It's the same ideas. The question was whether or not Parliament actually meant to allow free speech, and the answer was very clearly, no, we really didn't mean to. We want to control these things by using this license idea, and Zinger, by publishing these pamphlets and opinion pieces about the governor, is guilty of libel. He has become to us something of a forgotten symbol of liberty and free speech. Zinger's trial, and I'll just give you the short condensed version, (laughs) did not go well for the governor of New York. Zinger was acquitted faster than the O.J. Simpson jury, and he would go on to continue to publish things and continue to stand against the abuses of the crown against freedom of speech and freedom of the press. He would also, by the way, inspire an entire generation who believed so fervently in his ideas of liberty and freedom of speech that he would become really one of the inspirations for the founding generation. He would also, by the way, become a dire warning that we should be paying attention to. In San Diego County this week, San Diego County decided that they had a problem. The problem was, as they put it, medical misinformation. 
Now, they specifically tied this medical misinformation to COVID-19, and they were tired of medical misinformation being so easily and readily available and confusing, quote-unquote, the public as to what they should actually do about COVID-19, which is bizarre to me because, I'll be honest with you, even even giving it the most charity, charitable consideration I can give it, I'm not convinced the government knows what to do about it. I'm not convinced the CDC knows what to do about it. Why? The CDC is having some real backup problems right now with, with this vaccination stuff. But we'll get to that some other day. I have real issues with these declarations of crises, declarations of emergencies, because, again, it is the potential for abuse as an emergency. Emergencies come with emergency declarations, crisis declarations come with power. And that power then, as we know so well, can be easily and often is abused, leading to consequences that, well, certainly are not in favor of liberty. San Diego County held a county commissioner meeting. They had a 15-hour-long debate over this crisis declaration on medical misinformation. Now, let it marinate for just a moment. 15 hours of a government panel debating whether or not they should declare medical misinformation a crisis in San Diego County. I don't know. Um, I'm guessing all the other problems in San Diego have been solved already. I mean, that's why we can spend 15 hours on this. And at the end of that 15 hours, they voted to declare medical misinformation a crisis in San Diego County. And you may be saying to yourself, okay, Dave, after 15 hours of this debate, what does it mean? Well, it means that the commission, the county commission, the county board of supervisors there in San Diego County have declared medical misinformation a crisis. And that is literally all it means. If you live in San Diego County and you post something that they would consider to be medical misinformation, it's a crisis, but it's not a crime. In other words, there are absolutely no consequences for you posting medical misinformation, quote unquote, in San Diego County. All they really wanted to do was debate for 15 hours whether or not the CDC was the authority when it came to medical information. And whether or not this idea of discussion is really what they want happening in San Diego. We don't really, we, we wish you would just shut up and accept our authority rather than discussing it. It's a little disturbing that so many people spoke that, why do you need to declare this medical misinformation as a crisis? If it was really a crisis, what do you mean to do about it? And if the answer is nothing, then it's not really a crisis. You're just telling people to shut up and using the power of government to intimidate them into doing so. How is that any different than the governor of New York arresting John Peter Zinger, throwing him in jail and saying, you libeled me, shut up. One of the defenses 
that was used at Zinger's trial were writings by Francis Bacon, which is a name you should be familiar with. If you're not, I'm sorry, but in the early 1600s, Francis Bacon would become one of the greatest legal minds and legal scholars in all of human history. And he would write these words, liberty of speech inviteth and provoketh liberty to be used again. And so bringeth much to a man's knowledge. Let me put that in modern English. Liberty of speech invites and provokes liberty to be used again. And so increases much, brings much to man's knowledge. I love the word provoke. I, I know it's a strange word. It's a word we don't use much. The problem with we don't use it is because we associate it negatively. Oh, he provoked me. That's why I hit him. That's not really the deeper meaning of that word. The deeper meaning of that word is that it causes, it compels us to do something. And in this particular case, it provokes liberty. It compels us to use our liberties and thus gain much knowledge. If we never discuss things, if we're, if we're told this is the way it is, if knowledge is simply, if information is simply controlled and we never talk about it, how do we ever increase our knowledge? How much different would the world have been in the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, if instead of suppressing the great thinkers of that era, Johannes Kepler, Galileo, instead of hiding their materials, their, their thoughts, their thinkings, their ideas behind a wall of censorship, those ideas had been released, gone out. How much more if liberty of speech had invited and provoked them the liberties to discuss those things? How much more would our knowledge increased and faster? Even when somebody is wrong about an idea, it is the discussion, the speech that's invited, and the liberties that are provoked to question, as Jefferson said, to question boldly. Even if my questions are wrong, Truth, we're told, should win out. You know, I talked about the flat earthers yesterday. I, again, I don't believe that there are any flat earthers, but let's say for the sake of argument that there really was somebody who just absolutely is convinced beyond reason that, that the earth is flat. Are there not ways to prove to that person? Now, they may not accept it, but nobody who actually thinks could come to that conclusion. Nobody that can actually do math would come to the conclusion that the earth is flat. It can't be. So why do these people consist? They don't really exist, but if there were. Even when people are wrong, who ask those questions? And by, by asking those questions, they force you to think about your position, don't they? I've so often said, I don't care if you're conservative, liberal, independent, left, right. I don't care. But if you can't explain to me why you're that way in a thoughtful, meaningful manner that actually addresses issues as opposed to emotions, then you're not really that, and, and we don't really have anything to talk about. Over the course of history in our country, four times the Supreme Court of the United States has referenced that book I talked about a minute ago, the era. The Areopagus by John Milton. This was 
really the, the heart and soul of Zinger's defense. Give me the liberty to know, utter, and to argue freely according to conscience about all liberties. John Milton wrote that in the 1640s. And it, like I said, it became the, it became the focal point of, of John Zinger's defense. It really became his, his centerpiece, if you will, of the defense of freedom of the press. And as we said in the trial, Americans, <laughs> unlike the British, American colonialists, saw value in that. And literally, as I said, faster than, than the O.J. Simpson jury acquitted John Peter Zinger of libel. And he would go on to become one of our inspirations. That particular quote from the Areopagus is, is, is cited four times by the Supreme Court through the years, always in the defense of freedom of speech and freedom of the press, even when people are wrong. They have the liberty to know, to utter, to argue freely according to conscience about all liberties. Well, <laughs> except in San Diego County, right? Zinger would later write this in his newspaper. No nation, ancient or modern, ever lost the liberty of freely speaking, writing, or publishing their sentiments, but forthwith lost their liberty in general and became slaves. The question you got to ask yourself today, particularly if you're in San Diego County, You say there's no consequences, but you want me to shut up. Am I losing the liberty of freely speaking, writing, and publishing my sentiments? Or am I just losing my liberty in general? Or are you so sure you're right about everything that you can make people hmm, not talk about issues? Which is exactly... 180 degrees a route from what we founded this entire nation upon. <laughs>